Welcome back to Travel Nuggets. I'm your host, Christine Goss. And today we're going to be talking about one of the lesser known tea house treks, the Manislu Base Camp, or also called Manislu Circuit Trek. So tea house treks are hikes around the Himalayas of Nepal and involve going from tea house to tea house rather than tent camping. And these tea houses are found in the villages and they are run by villagers, um, locals, and offer sleeping arrangements, meals, um, and most often running water and even flushing toilets. Uh, so it is pretty nice uh, as far as the hiking goes, especially since a lot of these treks are you know, about 14 days or longer. So the Everest and the Annapurna base camp treks are some of the really well-known circuit treks in that area and tea house treks, but more and more adventure seekers are starting to explore another gem in the Himalayas, the Manaslu circuit track. So Manaslu is the eighth highest mountain in the world, rising uh, over 26,000 feet above sea level, and it's in the Nepalese Himalayas. The name of the mountain Manaslu means mountain of spirit, and it is located in the Gorkha district of Nepal. The Manaslu conservation area covers six climactic zones, tropical, subtropical, temperate, subalpine, alpine, meadows, and an Arctic zone. So there is a lot of variety. And the wildlife also is pretty interesting and unique, although um, we'll talk to some hikers later on. And they did uh, say that some of the, uh, the tea house treks don't have too many wild animals, but I did some some searching on Wikipedia and uh, found some of the, the cooler animals. Uh, they're all cool, but uh, some of the animals that popped out in um, in my reading were snow leopards, red pandas, lynx, Asian black bear, uh, Assam macaca, uh, the Himalayan musk deer, blue sheep, uh, and many, many other really cool animals that um, are certainly unique to the area. Uh, the the uh, the vegetation, of course, also varies by the zone, and we're going to talk to um, some hikers in a bit who can tell us a little bit more about what they saw. Uh, but just some quick overview of, of the Himalayas. Uh, they do cover 75% of Nepal, and um, the Himalayas do stretch into India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, China, Bhutan, um, in addition to Nepal. And the name means abode of snow in Sanskrit. So that should let you know a little bit about what, um, or give you some kind of um, key into what to expect as, as far as landscape goes. There, is, there are glaciers. Um, the third largest deposit of ice and snow in the world are in the Himalayas after Antarctica and the Arctic. Um, and this, I will post this on the Travel Nuggets blog, but this all comes from a, a PBS website that, um, or webpage that did some research and, and listed some facts about this, this region of the world. It's certainly interesting and worth getting out there and seeing with your eyes. Um, so the Manaslu region opened up for trekking in 1992. You do need a permit and a guide. So that's something to keep in mind as you plan. The most established route for the Manaslu base camp trek is 14 days. And the highest peak is called the Larkaya LA R-K-Y-A, La Pass, L-A-P-A-S-S. And its elevation is over 5,000 meters, so over 16,000 feet. Um, so it's it's high up there and um, altitude is an issue. Without further ado, let's bring in two people that have recently trekked out on this excursion. Welcome back to Travel Nuggets, Erin. Thanks, Christine. All right, and we are also joined by a new guest, Aaron's brother, Eric Morgan. 
Great. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Travel Nuggets. Um, we are going to talk about today uh, with both of you about this amazing trek, um, the Manaslu Base Camp. And I understand you did it together as brother and sister. You you headed out to Nepal and did this crazy trek. Whose idea was it? Uh, it was mainly my sister's to come across the Manaslu. Yeah, I mean, I learned about trekking in Nepal when I was in college, maybe I found some guidebook at like a library, 50 cent, Denton Ding, get them off the shelves book sale. And I just thought it sounded amazing to do this type of tea house trek, as they call it, where you stay in a hut and somebody feeds you a hot meal, uh, but you're covering pretty good amount of distance. I just thought it sounded great. So I've always wanted to do this. And then my brother and I were actually planning a trip to India. And I realized that we were going to be there at the beginning of the trekking season and suggested that we actually just make half of it a trek through Nepal. And Eric identified the Manaslu trek actually, uh, instead of some of the others that are out there that are a little more accessible. Uh, because we wanted to avoid a party trek. Interesting. So what is trekking season? It's the, not the rainy season. Um, so the weather's fairly you know, reasonable to go out and trek. Uh, it's not super hot yet. So I suppose it would be before the monsoon season. Oh. Yeah. All right. So I understand that this is actually an, um, one of the best kept secrets out there. People aren't doing this trek. So Eric, when you were doing your research, how did this one catch your attention? Well, we were looking for something a little further away. Uh, I know the Annapurna circuit, which is another Nepal trek, uh, sort of known for being a party trail. And, you know, we just kind of want to avoid some of the crowds and, you know, still see a lot of the, the beautiful trek that we could. Other people. Yeah. And Manaslu itself, I mean, the day number of days was right. It was the amount of time we had. And also it was accessible from uh, Kathmandu without an extra flight. So we were trying to keep our costs down. And so that was appealing, at least to me. Uh, I did this between jobs and knew I was going to have to wait some time before my next paycheck. And I think the other reason we settled on Manaslu is because, as Eric was saying, it's just not well known. Um, and part of the reason that it's not better traveled is because you have to have a guide to do the trek. And I think that extra costs keep people away. But we actually found it to be still affordable. Yeah, I heard that you, you actually do have to have a guide that's required and you need a permit to do it. So how many people were in your group and how many days was the trek, uh, and then how many how many hours a day slash miles do you did you go? So we had it was just me and my sister with a guide and a porter, so our group was four in total, and there was probably at least six other groups that sort of followed along the same trail. Um, but you know we weren't actually connected; we'd stay in the same places, follow a similar route, but we were we were free to really hike away from them. And um, it was fourteen days. Yeah, it was 14, 15 days. Uh, yep. the, you know, we didn't follow too strict of a schedule. You know, the quicker you get to your your tea house or your resting house, uh, you know, you can get a meal and sort of relax for a little bit. Uh, we were typically hiking 
between maybe four hours at a slower slower day up to maybe 10 hours, I think was one of the longest. Trek so one thing that really caught my attention when Aaron was telling me about this hike, because we met hiking in Chile and the, the natural landscapes were so beautiful there, but I, I really feel like I just went to the Chilean Patagonia. It, it doesn't feel like I went to Chile because I didn't really meet people. Um, I spent a couple of days in, or a couple hours in Santiago. So one thing that Aaron told me about was that the, the landscape of this trek integrated natural beauty with actual villages, the people of Nepal. Can you guys walk me through the scene, the, the, the cultural experience that um, also fuses with the natural landscapes? Yeah. So each night, as I mentioned earlier, we, you stay in what they call a tea house because they serve tea, but they also serve, you know, basic food, some of which is made just for trekkers. And some of it is apparently more traditional Nepalese food, you know, typical of the region, like dalbat is what they call it, which is uh, normally a, a plate that is uh, lentil-based stew, often with rice, some sort of cracker, some sort of spicy chutney on the side, and then maybe a meat, depending on how you order it. But some of the trekker food, by the way, is kind of amazing. Like they did um, uh, Snickers spring rolls, which after like two straight weeks of hiking was freaking amazing. Uh, those were very delicious, fried rice, that sort of thing. Um, Wait, wait, what's a Snickers roll? It sounds like a Snickers bar in rice. So it's a Snickers bar in a wonton wrapper that is deep fried. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was very good. <laughs> that sounds that like great. the best hike ever. So that's what they make at these tea houses. As some of them, you know, I mean, as I mentioned, we were trying to stick to a budget. And so we tend to order, you know, whatever was going to be filling, but not wildly expensive. So we actually bought a whole bunch of Snickers bars in Kathmandu and brought them on the trek with us. <laughs> they did not make it the entire way, but the higher up you get, you know, there's not roads getting to these places. And that's part of the charm of doing one of these treks in Nepal is that the only way stuff gets in and out is on foot. And so you see these donkey trains taking the trails and you see trains bringing the stuff that people need from outside of their village from what they can't grow there that's that's how it gets there it's also how everything for trekkers gets there too so um medicine is in short supply and really hard to come by unless you're there in one of the very few areas that has a doctor that's been staffed recently uh stocked recently i should say um and you know so we got to witness that in action, I suppose. Um, some of the towns are very small, you know, maybe just a couple of hotels, guest houses, a couple of houses, some farms, but uh, some of them are quite large, actually. I was surprised uh, by, Eric, I don't know if you, I don't remember the names of these places, maybe you do, but the one of the last ones we stopped in that was sort of at the juncture before you headed off towards the uh, option to go to the Tibetan border. Mm -hmm. uh, that one was very, quite big, and that was several days of trekking into the into the route. So, I was surprised. Yeah, most of these stops were you know houses just made of stone, and then you know trees just sort of pieced together as the top. Um, you know, some of the nicer towns really had cobbled stone walkways, but mm -hmm. it's just you know dirt paths that you'd walk along. Um, and there, we came across one area that actually had a hotel that had been built where it was somewhat of 
more of like a hostel that you you'd go you come to somewhere else but yeah you know the majority of these places would sometimes have a concrete floor uh you know some were just stone huts or some looked like you know standard fencing that you'd see just four walls and a roof yeah did they farm or that was that how did they how did they get their livelihood did they keep livestock yes there was farming we saw livestock um i suspect that a lot of the people living in these villages make their money off the tourist trade though oh Oh, so were you you were um as you trekked along you met people that would try to sell you sell you things yeah i mean at one point, Eric needed to buy a pair of shoes. And so we did some exploration to see if we could find some. And uh, apparently Eric's feet are like very big by Nepalese standards. And so we got laughed out of a few different kiosks. But there are definitely shops that will like sell things to tourists. I mean, they also sell things to people who live there. But I mean, I would imagine we... I, well, I don't know. I didn't really feel the need to bargain. I thought the prices we got quoted for things were fair. But who knows? You know, maybe we were taking a haircut you know the, the trail seemed to be like their standard route to go from town to town that was sort of built up with hikers coming along so amenities are really built for hikers but you know people have been using this trail forever it seemed like yeah hiking along and come across you know a family that sort of lives along the trail and their kids are there and you know you can see these rice paddies and I mean, we stopped at one place where they had apple trees, so we bought a bag of apples from them. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. So that's actually interesting. So it was a very, it seems like it was sort of a a hike slash walk from village to village. Did you encounter, and correct me if I'm wrong about that, but did you, um, what was the natural landscape like? Because I was reading about the kind of animals that live in the Himalayas. And if there was just some pretty incredible, you know, animals that I hadn't heard of, um, could you walk us through what you saw, whether there was a lot of wildlife or was there too much human activity to really see anything? Well, we, we saw some mountain goats was a little different. I guess they were endangered. Um, we really didn't see a lot of wildlife. There were some interesting birds, but for the most part, we saw a lot of donkeys. We saw some yaks and Oh yeah, just domesticated animals. I mean, yeah, uh, we didn't really see a lot of wildlife going through. Um, the terrain sort of changed as you get higher up in the mountains, to where it would go from more of like a pine to a bamboo to sort of like a, a brush, uh, sort of oaky type area. Mm-hmm. You know, it was similar to some you know, like Shenandoah Valley, living in Virginia, that style of mountains uh, was surprisingly similar. Yeah, I mean, except, of course, that the peaks you see are just outrageous compared to what you would see. I mean, you know, I don't want to knock the Shenandoahs, but uh, trekking in Nepal is a whole different thing, at least for the trek that we did. I mean, as Eric was saying, you really see the terrain change as your elevation increases, the higher you go, but less maybe halfway into the track, I would say we made it to a glacial lake where you're at an actual glacier. And then, you know, the next day we're at this base camp where people are getting ready to climb a peak that is also a glacier. And then we climb a couple more days and all of a sudden we're at a mountain pass. I mean, 
the, the train changed a lot over time um, from very lush to very barren feeling. Um, but that glacial lake was just incredibly gorgeous. And the views were amazing. We got to hike up to the top and look down. We got to walk up close to it. Uh, we spent a couple of days around that. And it was, for me, the high point of the natural scenery, I guess. Yeah. And can you also just explain to listeners, what is the different, the key differences about a base camp hike versus a peak hike? And I, I know the obvious reason is you climb a mountain versus you're walking to the base camp, but why would someone pick one or the other? Was your trek flatter? Um, why didn't you just do Manislow? How do you pick that? Well, a, a base camp is you're, you're walking to a destination in order, the, the base camp is where people prepare to then climb a full summit versus, you know, just doing a standard peak would be uh, more of like an up, up or down hike. You know, I believe the Manislu uh, to, to summit is probably like a month, I think was some of the, what people were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you I didn't mean, have to deal with altitude or anything, altitude sickness or problems. Oh, we did deal with altitude. I mean, there were several acclimatization days built into our 15-day trek where, as Eric was saying at the beginning, we might just hike four hours if it was a day where we had a lot of altitude uh, to pick up and where we would stay at, you know, we'd hike up to a higher elevation and then sleep at a lower elevation on certain days intentionally to build up to reaching a high elevation and we were quite high by the end of the trek um but i mean to summit a himalayan peak is a technical endeavor that as eric said is very time consuming but also you know, some people do it with oxygen tanks i mean we just don't have any technical mountain i mean i don't have technical mountain climbing skill anyway i don't want to speak for eric but i mean this is something you can do just being in reasonably good shape a, a Manislu circuit trek, you know, where you just go to the base camp and that's it. You go over a pass, but the mountain climbing is, I think, a whole different, whole different thing. It was a physical. It's not like climbing up, climbing up to the peak of a mountain, you know, in a in Virginia, for example, where you could do it without a lot of technical skill. I mean, it was very physical, but I did the trek in tennis shoes. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, we had a guide that advised me not to but we had spoke to his boss and he said oh i've got antibas but you know he's also you know, uh he lives in the fall he's done the trek you know 40 or 50 times i'm sure so. yeah before starting a company so so your guide um did this guide carry your stuff or were you carrying packs so we had a separate guide in porter uh santos was our guide and then uh, mean Ross. Mean Ross. So, uh, uh, typically the porters will sort of go for a while until they learn the trails well enough to become guides on their own. Sort of the hierarchy to it. Um, you know, the porter had a hard job. He carried Aaron's and I stuff for the most part. We would have day bags because we couldn't access our stuff until we got to the tea house treks along the route, the tea house stops. Mm-hmm. He definitely had a hard time. I mean, it's a, it, it seemed like backbreaking work to do it, but he was the nicest guy. Did you feel bad, <laughs> Lee? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he'd stop and take breaks, and, I mean, we were worn out, but he had a giant bag on his back, plus his own stuff. <laughs> he carried this little teeny double bag for his own stuff that just had, like, two shirts. 
no hair shorts. I mean, Gosh. Yeah. Well, so at, yeah. on that point, what was the weather like? Was it hot? Was it humid? Was it cold? All of the above? Well, it varied depending on the climate we're in. I mean, by the time you're at the top of the mountain, I mean, there was snow and glaciers and it was freezing. And the lower elevations, you know, you're soaked in sweat hiking along. Well, beautiful weather. I mean, it's pretty doable just with shell pants and, you know, maybe some leggings. Mm-hmm. Just a light jacket. It was unreasonable, but we also we also picked a good time to go. Yeah, the weather can get uh, get a lot colder and rainier later on in the season. Was this your first time traveling together? Um, yes. Yeah, just as a solo trip together. Yeah. Yeah, as adults. Mm-hmm. So, how was that? Did it? Um, was it kind of a once in a lifetime experience or how did that, cause I know you guys don't live close to each other. So how, um, was it, was it a good experience? I know we have you both on here, but. Yeah, I mean, definitely we get along well and I enjoyed it. Oh yeah, definitely. I was super happy. I got to do this with my brother. Um, it went extremely well. Um, yeah, very easy easy to travel with you, Eric. Um, I would definitely travel again with my brother. I love this Five stars. that I, I don't even know who said it, but it said, it's not just where you travel, but it's who you travel with that makes an experience special. And, um, I just think that's so true. And I, I travel with my brother a little bit and, and you, you come out with these great stories. Uh, do you guys have any, like, what's the story you tell, or what did you tell your mom when you got back about, you know, as you reminisce? I mean I don't even know where to start with that I mean I think uh (laughs) so I, I think the um one of the stories that makes me happiest about the fact that I traveled with Eric and not with somebody else was from when we were in India and it was in fact our first night uh and we checked into like, I, this place was like 10 bucks a night or something for both of us. I mean, it was dirt cheap, like flea bag hostel. And the guy looks directly at my brother and I booked twin beds, mind you, two separate beds because we are brother and sister. And he's like, well, this is the room you booked, but are you sure you don't want a room with a double bed? <laughs> it's just so gross and creepy. And brother like is it turns out super adept at handling like gross creepy weirdos and like not you know taking advantage of the fact that we were traveling a place where women traditionally you know or I don't know about traditionally but where women were expected in this case to take a back seat and let the men make decisions Eric was like the ideal companion for that I was so uh happy to be with somebody who is my brother who understands me and who also got the situation and knew it was freaking weird and had just <laughs> the best response so that for me was uh yeah it made me really happy to be traveling with him but there were a number of moments on that trip that <laughs> were noteworthy I think <laughs> Eric how about you anything to add any good stories uh well, I guess the story we would tell to our mom, she's a nurse, so uh, my sister had a bug that had crawled into her ear, and our guide, Santos, 
was, you know, he, he was trying to keep us calm when issues would arise and, you know, do his, do his best job as a guide. So we were trying to figure out how to get this bug out and he had suggested pour mustard oil in her ear. And we, we just sort of, the, the whole concept was to sort of get it to float up. I think is what it was. And you know, it's kind of odd, but it's something our mom appreciated hearing being a nurse. Wait, did you do it? Country. Yes, we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is mustard oil and did it work? <laughs> it is made of mustard seeds. Apparently it is a traditional remedy in Nepal when people get bugs in their ears. Either that or Santos is just like full of crap and <laughs> unclear. <laughs> but <laughs> I did allow him to dab oil in my ear with his finger until it filled up my ear canal and no bug emerged. (laughs) Um, I did not get an ear infection, which was the big concern. I was really worried about getting an ear infection and to the point where Santos thought we were at the point of no return where if we didn't go back then, like if we went any further, I was going to have to get like medevaced out if I got an ear infection basically. Um, and so he was really stressed about it and, uh, I was stressed about it. The mustard oil did not help, but I also didn't want to leave. And so I just dealt with it and it, I got some antibiotics when I got back and it was all Wait, fine. so this bug could be in your ear still? <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I have a tiny souvenir. <laughs> someday, someday he's just going to emerge. Another funny bug story was that we had just gotten to this uh, a tea house. Oh. The walls were made up of fencing, right? Where you could see the next place if you look at it. So we had just shown wait, up. Wait, wait, wait. Start that over, Eric. Sorry. So we had just shown up to you know, and, and this tea, it was at night and it was dark and they just have this little, you know, light bulb hanging from a wire. And so we turn it on. So there's not much light. And the walls were made up of fencing where you could you can see through if you look at an angle, but if you look at it straight on, you can't because it's, you know, alternated planks. And so we see this giant spider. <laughs> and I mean, this it was, you know, like the size of your hand. I mean, they have monstrous spiders there. So <laughs> we're freaking out, <laughs> like trying to hit it with shoes and like freaking out. And, you know, the, the spider crawled into our neighbor's bunk because like it's open <laughs> <laughs> we were like sitting there debating on like whether or not we were going to tell him or not. And it's <laughs> like sitting there very quietly, like listening to us, like try to kill this spider with a shoe. And so we go and like talk to our guide and we're like, Santos, you know, what do we do? This spider crawled into our neighbor's place and it's huge. And he was like, well, do you want to poison the spider? And we're like, no, we want to squish it. <laughs> like he didn't quite know, like, you know, what we were saying. And I guess these spiders weren't really like poisonous or anything. They didn't really hurt anything, but we were terrified. And so then, you know, we had this awkward moment of, you know, us just like letting the spider go in our neighbor's place and us like debating, not saying anything to them, seeing them later on when they overheard the whole thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, we so wait, were you ultimately decided to let your neighbor go to yes. sleep with the spider. Well, by then they had heard the whole story, but. I mean, we were fairly loud about it in the middle of the night, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. they're monstrous. Like. Oh my God. No. So we figured out that it wasn't poisonous anymore later, but like, <laughs> I mean, we told them the next morning, like that there was a spider in our room or something. And like, 
they were like, oh yeah, we heard you trying to kill it with the shoe. But like, I don't know <laughs> if they realized that like, we thought they were going to die. I mean, like, we didn't know it was poisonous at the time. We thought, I and mean, this spider was the size of a dinner plate. Like we were like losing what? our minds. Like we thought that like it was going to go in there and bite them or something. I don't know. It was, I mean, it was terrifying. It was enormous. It was the it was the first spider we had seen that big of the trip, and later on we saw quite a few that were just as large. But dinner yeah. plate for real, like the well, with a the- saucer. I mean, a hand size is not an exaggeration. I mean, oh yeah, it was huge. So you guys didn't mention all this when I asked about wildlife dinner size. <laughs> well, I, I was looking for you to see a snow leopard, but that's equally exciting. Um, <laughs> We didn't see any monkeys in Nepal. Lots of monkeys in India. Yeah. We saw them in Kathmandu, but not along. A red panda, because I think they're fascinating. No pandas. No pandas. No (laughs) red pandas. (laughs) They look like a raccoon. Um, All right. So let's just segue over to just give listeners. So you have to, um, I like how you said that you don't need to take a flight to do this trek, but you do start at Kathmandu and then you get in or Kathmandu and you take a bus, correct? Is that right? Yeah. So how many days would you need in Kathmandu to really take it in? That's Two or three. I mean, Kathmandu is very busy when you get into it. It's very busy, very dusty, and there's a lot of sensory overload sort of coming onto it. If you if you get straight off the airplane and go right in, you don't have any warm up in India or anything. And then it takes maybe you have to have haggle time to really get all your your trekking gear together. You know, we didn't fly out with anything. We bought everything out there. Mm-hmm. There's lots of cheap knockoff goods that work perfectly good. Yep. They're, they're cheap. So, you know, you need about a full day to assemble everything, uh, including your time to haggle and really shop around for what you want. But, you know, it's the home of Mount Everest. There's, Kathmandu is just full of trekking gear shops. There's no shortage whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And Kathmandu itself also is a town that is that really caters to backpackers. I mean, it is full. I, I mean, Eric and I, when we got back from trekking, we went to a Mexican restaurant. It, it was not good Mexican food, but they promised that their chef trained in Texas or something like this. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's just full of like, I mean, it's just full of like bars and clubs and stuff like that, blasting like European pop and American music. And backpackers from all over the world who descend on this place to do basically what we did or some variation of it and buy all their gear and get out. But there's also some really cool stuff to see in Kathmandu proper. Um, A couple of UNESCO World Heritage sites that Eric and I checked out uh, the day after we got back from the trek that were worth seeing. Uh, You spent a little more time there than I did, Eric. How much time did you need to actually see like the, you know, the tourist highlights well you have side trips that you can take from Kathmandu but uh you know I think I think I covered it all within the what three days of sightseeing we saw around there okay yeah I mean you know there's some overlap I sort of went back to eat lunch and sort of hang out along Buddha Stupa Mm -hmm. yeah so is it um 
would you say is it a safe is it safe to walk around and um and even at night as a city yeah i didn't see any issues none at all i mean you know there's plenty of people out uh, all times of the night i mean yeah walking through like some of the odd alleyways i mean the place is full of alleyways that lead you to the next road it's great to wander around and yeah i i didn't feel unsafe at all going through yeah totally i didn't either and um yeah i didn't pick up on any anything i i never felt uncomfortable i i can't say that was true in india but <laughs> the entire time we were in nepal it was totally fine yeah all right. So we'll have to have you back to talk about your India trip. Uh, but I think we have covered the Manaslu trek. Um, anything else to add, Morgans? Uh, they have a local wine they make called Roxy. And it's made of <laughs> that they sell along the trail, which is a grain. And it's cheap and it's good. And it's worth trying if you go out. Okay. So it's a wine. Is it red or white? It's a clear uh, distilled wine made from millet, which is like a like a bird seed, more or less. Wait, so you can have a wine that's not made from grapes? Correct. Interesting. So, yeah, what would just, you say that that is similar to? It, it's made from, did you say millet? It's, you know, it's like a sake version of. Oh, right. Like, yeah. Oh, of course, rice wine. Um. Yeah. But, you know, it's their local staple that was, you know, something interesting. It was good. I mean, you know, after a long day of trekking, it's it's served uh, commonly warm and it's the spot. With a Snickers wonton. (laughs) Yes. Perfect end to a perfect day. (laughs) Correct. I just want to add, since I kept track of every single dime that we spent on this trip, that this trip is very affordable. And so people should really think about it. It sounds intimidating because you are going very far. But Eric and I, you know, we tried to stick to a budget, but we were not. You know, once by the time we got to Nepal, we had a beer when we wanted a beer. We bought stuff. We did all of our trekking outfitting on the ground. And we spent about $500 a person all in for 16 days of food plus accommodation and all of our trekking gear. And then on top of that, we spent $600 a person for the trek for all accommodations for the guide, for the porter, for all of it. So it was really, I mean, $1,100 a person for two weeks, I, I think very affordable and we could have done it for even less. And so actually that was just one last question I wanted to ask. So you did purchase your meals from the tea houses. So people should bring money when they're on the track. Yeah. You have to bring cash. Yeah. Okay. That was the one thing actually that kept us to a strict budget when we were actually doing the trekking because we brought X amount of cash and we knew it had to last X number of days. And so that was part of what led me to keep track just so I know, but you know, where, I, where our money was going and how we were doing cash wise, but yeah, it's cash only up there. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining Travel Nuggets and I hope you plan more adventures and we will have you back. Hey, thank Agreed. You. Thanks, Christine. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Travel Nuggets. I'll post more information about this episode, including helpful links on the Travel Nuggets website. Please visit travelnuggetspodcast.com. 
There, you can check out additional episodes or download them wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd love to hear your feedback and ideas. You can email me at travelnuggetspodcast at gmail.com.